everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. So I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and whew, gotta say, so far, 2021 isn't looking a hell of a lot more precedented than 2020. But pretty small sample size so far, I guess. Uh, For those of you listening to this out of context, as I am recording this intro bit, it is currently January 6th, 2021. And here's how long today has been. When the day started off, I thought to myself, gosh... The comic we're covering today has a lot of really fun stuff with the Hulk and Beans. I hope the internet isn't still talking about Bean Dad. Well, be careful what you wish for, because I'm pretty sure most of the internet isn't talking about Bean Dad anymore. Anyway, it's a bit later than I normally try to release these, but I was... Editing the conversation between Corey and myself, and I kept getting distracted by the news for some reason. So, I'm sorry this is coming out later than I like to do these, but without any further ado, let's ado this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tuhey. If you don't pay at Donna's, you go popless. If you cosplay as Namor, you go topless. But Nathaniel D. Hubbard has everything covered as he recaps for us his synopsis. Thanks, Devin. Defenders, number 89. November, 1980. A Death in the Family. But it's not that comic book, A Death in the Family. It's the better one. Written by Ed Hannigan, and David Anthony Kraft, and Mark Gruenwald, and Stephen Grant. Drotted by Don Perlin, inked by Pablo Marcos, lettered by Diana Albers, colored by George Rousos, and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup Hellcat, Valkyrie, The Hulk, Nighthawk, Clea, and Daredevil. Previously in The Defenders. An indeterminate amount of comic book time ago, a plucky non-team ran afoul of a supervillainous anthropomorphic baboon with the ability to control women through his pheromones. His name was Mandrill, and his origin and backstory were exactly as full of racist and misogynist tropes as you might imagine. The defenders managed to thwart Mandrill's plans, but the monkey-faced malefactor managed to escape capture and swore vengeance on the heroes. Also, after years of serving as the negligent, hands-off CEO of his inherited business empire, billionaire-do-well-bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk, was finally being investigated by the government for fraud, tax evasion, and gross financial malfeasance. Hooray! The courts had issued an order banning the affluent avian aficionado from participating in any costumed crime punching during the course of the ongoing investigation. But, after a few months of mostly obeying this injunction, Kyle found that he really missed fancy dress fisticuffs, 
So he hired the best lawyer who was willing to put up with his bullshit and was within a block of where he happened to be standing at the time to fight the case. The lawyer in question, a Milton Rosenblum, did everything in his power short of turning off his television while working to help his client. But soon he found that he was out of his depth. So Milt sought out the services of a consultant who specialized in superheroic law, a blind attorney named Matt Murdock. If that name seems familiar, it's probably because A. Matt Murdock moonlights as the acrobatic adventurer Daredevil, and 2. Matt Murdock is about as good at maintaining his secret identity as Kyle Richmond is. Together, Rosenblum and Murdock worked out a deal where Kyle could start wearing his bird suit again, but his company was still totally hosed. For good or ill, this seemed to align with Nighthawk's priorities, so I guess great lawyering, guys! In other Defenders news, Patsy Walker, aka Hellcat, has always had a complicated relationship with her estranged mother Dorothy. Unbeknownst to Patsy, Dorothy recently succumbed to her undefined long-standing medical issues and was admitted to the hospital. Her doctor was of the opinion that 1. Dorothy Parker was a real jerk, and B. She would probably die soon. Also, also, the Hulk made friends with a whale and punched a boat. Gadzooks! What was the average cost for a can of baked beans in New Jersey in 1980? How many cans of beans does that mean $38.59 would purchase? And why do all these questions pertain to cans of beans? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, around 26 cents, approximately 148 cans, and because in this issue, the Hulk goes to a grocery store in New Jersey, buys $38.59 worth of baked beans, and makes his fellow defenders eat them all. Hooray! Although seriously, what are the odds that after literal years of looking forward to covering this comic, this episode has to come out in the one week when Twitter is rife with problematic bean content? Hey there, this is Editor Hub here in the future. As I noted in the intro, I'm aware that nobody on Twitter gives a shit about beans anymore ever since some dipshits tried to do a coup. But I thought I'd leave that bit in as a reminder of simpler times. The Hulk is all tuckered out from boat punching and whale riding, so he passes out and turns back to Bruce Banner. Val carries him around like a gangly, purple jorts-wearing baby as she and Patsy head up to Kyle's apartment, which has been serving lately as a makeshift Defender's headquarters. They get some awkward looks, but nobody says shit because they're pals with a rich guy. Must be nice. I always get a stink eye when I carry around a gangly, purple jorts-wearing baby. When they arrive upstairs, they find that they are not the only guests who are intent on making themselves welcome in Kyle's apartment. A group of government agents are informing Kyle and his lawyer, Milton Rosenblum, that while Kyle is free to dress up like a bird if he wants to, the IRS is freezing his assets and seizing his apartment as collateral until they can determine whether or not he owes back taxes. The meeting is going relatively calmly until one of the agents turns off the TV, at which point Milton flips the fuck out like he was Tommy from Goodfellas and that guy Frank Vincent place just told him to get his shine box. He starts wrecking the joint. While Kyle tries to calm his newly irascible attorney down, the phone starts ringing. It's for Patsy. Turns out her mom just died. Bummer. Unsure where to go and sorely in need of emotional support and consolation, the gang heads over to Dr. Strange's Sanctum Sanctimonious. Huh. 
interesting choice. Fortunately, Steve isn't home, so Clea and Valkyrie do their best to comfort Patsy, while Bruce and Kyle wait awkwardly in the other room because gender roles. Damn it, Bruce and Kyle! Damn it, gender roles! When she's calmed down a bit, Patsy begins to make preparations for the funeral the next day. Val isn't sure what she should wear to such an event, and Patsy's like, Well, your old job in Asgard as head of the Valkyrior had a certain funereal element to it. How about you just wear your old boob cone armor? Everyone thinks that sounds fine, so Clea lays a magical whammy on Val's outfit and zaps it back to being a bathing suit adorned with metal funnels. Meanwhile, back at Kyle's apartment, attorney Matt Murdock arrives looking for his client. He notices a piece of paper taped to the door, stating that the property has been seized and is about to leave when his super-sensitive hearing alerts him to some suspicious activity on the building's roof. The sightless superhero quickly changes into his daredevil duds and heads up to investigate. The horn-headed hero is surprised to find a high-tech superplane is landing on the helipad. Even more surprising is that the plane is filled with scantily clad women, one of whom is carrying a five-gallon jug filled with hypnotic mutant baboon pheromones. Daredevil's radar doesn't differentiate between colors, so he's unaware that the uniforms the women are wearing are the distinct purple and blue outfits that mark them as Mandrill's underlings, Femforce. But he does recognize the scent of Mandrill, which permeates their vehicle. Unfortunately, this realization does him little good, as he is soon overwhelmed by the legion of brainwashed... Nosewashed? Women. Several of them hold him in place, while one lady shoots him with a tranquilizer dart and knocks out the confused crimson-clad crime fighter. Mandrill had instructed Femforce to kidnap Nighthawk, but when they report back to their simian Svengali, he's delighted that they've captured Daredevil instead. Turns out D.D. had previously thwarted some of Mandrill's schemes, and for the ape-featured antagonist's current plan, one costumed hero is as good as the next. Acting on his orders, Femforce hauls an unconscious daredevil into their aircraft and takes off for parts unknown. Meanwhile, in a cemetery in New Jersey, the Defenders and a small group of mourners have gathered together for the funeral of Dorothy Walker, Hellcat's mom. At the gravesite, Patsy gives a little speech about how even though her mother had never approved of her and the two of them hadn't really gotten along, she's still really sad about her passing. After the ceremony, a middle-aged woman approaches them and introduces herself as Dolly Donahue, the late Mrs. Walker's friend and former housekeeper. She tells them that Dorothy left her suburban home in Montclair, New Jersey, to Patsy, and if they don't have anywhere else to go, they can all stay there if they want to. Kyle's like, Well, I wouldn't want to be an imposition. And Dolly's like, Yeah, good point. Have a nice drive back to the city. Hooray! I like Dolly. Patsy intervenes and insists that Kyle and the rest of the Defenders join her at her newly inherited home. Ah, I'm a little disappointed that Patsy didn't let Dolly call Nighthawk's bluff, but that disappointment doesn't last very long, because on the next page we are treated to a full-page map of the gang's new temporary neighborhood in Montclair. And I do love me some comic book cartography. The map shows Patsy's house, the nearby hospital, a grocery store, some train tracks, a gas station, a payphone, and a fast food eatery. It is pretty great. The only thing missing is a dotted line denoting the misadventures of a giant-headed moppet named Billy, 
but I'm willing to stipulate that if there is such a kid in the neighborhood, he's probably grabbing a bite to eat at the delightfully defensively named Chicken OK restaurant. When the gang arrives at their destination, Patsy gives a tour of the place and explains a little bit about the nature of her strained relationship with her deceased mother. Turns out, Dorothy Walker wanted her daughter to go into showbiz, and she tried pretty hard to push her in that direction from an early age. When years of dragging a disinterested young Patsy to modeling tryouts and acting auditions failed to pay dividends, Dorothy changed tactics and started writing the adventures of a fictionalized version of the daughter she wished she had. These stories got published, and the made-up version of Patsy became the teen idol her mother had dreamed that the real Patsy would be. Patsy rebelled by marrying her childhood boyfriend, Buzz Baxter. But while that succeeded in pissing off her mother, it had the unintended consequence of pissing off Patsy, because it turned out that Buzz was a real piece of shit. The two divorced, and Patsy decided to join up with the Avengers and become a superhero. Patsy takes Kyle up to the attic to show him the stack of comics and magazines her mother had written about her. As the two of them sift through the ephemera of her meta-narrative backstory, Val and Bruce head downstairs to help the long-suffering housekeeper Dolly get ready for dinner. Dolly sends Val to the nearby supermarket with a list of items she will need to prepare a stereotypical suburban repast for her guests. The only problem is, after Val leaves, Dolly realizes that she forgot to give the supernaturally Scandinavian swordslinger any money. Oops! She gives Bruce a fistful of cash and asks that he bring it to the Azir Amazon and aid her in her quest to receive sundries from the grocery store. As he goes, she also yells after him to pick up a couple of rolls of Charmin, because I guess the defenders seem like real poopers. This is where the story goes from great to hooray! So on his way to the store, Bruce gets bullied by a quartet of strangely dressed local street toughs who try to take the physicist's lunch money. Bad move, strangely dressed local street toughs. Bruce turns into the Hulk, which effectively dissuades the toughs from their bullying. Hooray! Lucky for the toughs, the Hulk displays an uncharacteristic amount of focus, and despite his transformation, remembers his goal of delivering a fistful of cash to his pal Valkyrie. Leaving a trail of terrified toughs in his wake, the Green Goliath hurries into the store. Meanwhile... Valkyrie finds herself overwhelmed by the selection of goods that the supermarket has to offer. Not only that, but the brand name processed foods she's been tasked with purchasing bear strange labels that read Wonder Bread, Noodle Roni, and Cooled Whip, which are strange sounding and totally flummox the Norse warrior. Stymied as she is by this unintended riddle of consumer options, Val is relieved to find distraction in the form of a trio of armed gunmen who decide to attempt robbing the store. Attempt being the operative word. Val charges the would-be robbers, sword in hand, eager to take her shopping-related frustrations out on the no-goodniks. They fire their weapons at her, but the valorous Valkyrie is unfazed. Swinging her magic sword, she deftly deflects the bullets. Hooray! Before the unlucky crooks get a chance to reload, Hulk steps in behind them and crushes one of their guns and the hand that wields it. Ouch. After that, the bandits readily turn their remaining weapons over to the store manager, who holds them at gunpoint as they wait meekly for the police to arrive. Triumphant Val and the Hulk return to their shopping, but in the excitement of thwarting the robbery, Valkyrie lost her grocery list. Oh no! Fortunately, 
Hulk knows what to do. The Jade Giant confidently fills the cart with what turns out to be a little over 150 cans of baked beans. Hooray! Then he turns the cart upside down over the conveyor belt at the checkout stand. Hooray! After ringing up all the cans, the cashier nervously asks him for $38.59, at which point the Hulk proudly proclaims that he knows that he knows all about money. He slaps $23 down next to the register and leaves the store with his precious bounty of baked beans. Hooray! When they get home, Dolly cooks all the beans and serves them to the heroes for dinner. Good call, Dolly. Wouldn't want those 148 cans of beans to go bad. Hulk is pretty stoked about the meal. His non-teammates are decidedly less stoked. Hooray! After dinner, the defenders repair to the living room for an evening of watching television. The reception's kind of shitty, so Kyle straps on his high-tech bird wings and heads up to the roof to adjust the antenna. It takes him a little while because, well, Kyle's kind of a doofus. By the time he finishes, the rest of the gang is fast asleep. Kyle heads to bed as well because he has an important court date in the morning, but between the flashing neon of the adjacent gas station sign, the noise of the train, and a bout of gastrointestinal distress brought on by a surfeit of beans, hooray, he has trouble getting to sleep. As a result of his insomnia, he decides to call in sick for his court date. He asks Dolly where the phone is, and she's like, about a block down the street. Can't miss it. I like her. Kyle stumbles out the door to the payphone to inform his legal team that he'd rather not be prosecuted for a major crime today because he's sleepy. Meanwhile, somewhere in New York, Daredevil wakes up in a bank vault and is like, Where am I? You're in a bank vault. After a minute, he's like, Oh, I think I'm in a bank vault. Told ya. To be continued. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? Hey, Happy New Year. I'm doing okay. Yeah, Happy New Year to you, too. I've been kind of couching the way that I've been phrasing that when I've been talking to most people, because, I don't know, happy seems a little bit ambitious after last year, but, like, better New Year, certainly. Yeah, or just, you know, it is all pretty arbitrary, I guess, but I do feel a sense of happiness that the calendar is, you know, turned. I feel the same. I know that it is entirely symbolic but, you know, putting up the new baby animal's calendar felt pretty darn good. Mm, I bet. And, you know, who doesn't like a nice picture of a baby penguin? Oh, is that January? Yeah. Nice. So, I'm actually pretty excited to talk about this comic book, so you ready to get into it? I am ready. Okay. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? I thought it was a hoot. I'm so glad to hear that. I love this comic book. I think this might be my favorite issue of The Defenders. It's just super fun. And tying into the whole calendar flipping thing, I think this is an auspicious way to start 2021. I looked back at our podcast feed, and 
the first issue we covered last year was the Defenders number 65, which is one of my least favorite Defenders issues. Hmm. It's the one where Red Guardian decides to start a romantic relationship off in the wasteland with codename Sack of Shit. Mm. And then it was kind of followed by a year worth of Defender stories that there have certainly been some bright spots, but I got to admit, it's been a little bit of a slog. Mm -hmm. And so starting this year with this weird wackiness felt really good. I think it starts things off in a nice way. Yeah, you know right away you're in for something because the credit page has that ribbon with the credits on it. And we see, unless I just haven't been paying attention, what I thought were some new names contributing ideas and continuity. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that'll be good. Yeah, continuity and ideas seems like a nice change of pace. It's not always a good sign when you see a bunch of hands stirring the pot with comic books, but in this case, it worked out really well. So yeah, we see that David Anthony Kraft is back, and we see that continuity is contributed by Mark Gruenwald, who we've talked about a little bit before, and Stephen Grant, who we've also talked a little bit before. They both did some fill-in issues over the past year. But they're both writers that I like, and where it says continuity contribution, I think the continuity that they contributed was probably the idea for retconning Patsy's origin to make it fit in with the current Marvel Universe. And that is one of my favorite retcons that has been done. I think oh. the way that they did that was really elegant. It's like a Russian nesting doll of meta narrative, you know? Yeah, I'm so glad you pointed that out because I thought to myself, gosh, it takes two people to figure out how to explain Valkyrie changing back to her old costume. <laughs> that was another thing that was kind of weird to see that kind of shoehorned in. And I'm pretty sure this is just Valkyrie getting her old costume back, which I have mixed feelings about. I know I'm in the minority on it, but I like her silvery space age looking sleeker costume that doesn't have the weird boob cones. Mm -hmm. But I, like I said, I seem to be in the minority on that because writers seem very eager to put her back in that costume. And we've seen that happen a few times already. And it hasn't been that long that she's had the new costume. Yep. But no, I think that the continuity that Gruenwald and Grant contributed was the explanation of Patsy's back issues when it was Patsy Walker in her more like teenage comedy comic book that came out in the 40s and 50s being folded into the Marvel Universe proper. And so they introduced the idea that that version of Patsy and those comic books exist within the Marvel Universe and were a fictionalized version of Patsy Walker that was developed by her showbiz mother. And I think that's really, really clever. What, what did you think of that twist? Yeah, I thought it was really clever also. and. It made me think that her character is remarkably well-adjusted for having such a weird mom. Yeah, I like it, though. And I like also, it seems like they're walking back a little bit, at least, having her mom be as one-note evil as she had seemed in previous references to her. We see that her mom didn't like Buzz Baxter either, which it had kind of been leaning in another direction from that. And we see that her mom has some pretty tight friends, one of which is Millie the model, who has generally been shown in a pretty benevolent light. Mm -hmm. And 
One of them is the housekeeper, Dolly Donahue, mm-hmm. who is an interesting character that I kind of like, although I'm not sure if we're supposed to. I kind of dig how passive-aggressive she is. <laughs> Maybe I've been living in Portland too long. Yeah, it's interesting that they were able to get that to come through in the comic where I feel like that sort of subtlety is often not addressed. I'm not sure if I would have necessarily picked up on it if the characters in-universe hadn't picked up on it. If, like, Kyle and Patsy hadn't just been like, well, it seems like she's kind of trying to guilt trip you, huh? Mm-hmm. I really like that idea. I like them going up into the attic and seeing the boxes of Patsy Walker paraphernalia that her mom has stored up there. I think that's an aspect of the character that they ended up using in, gosh, the, I think it was the Jessica Jones series where they had Patsy Walker be a character in it. I didn't make it that far into the series to see the Patsy Walker character introduced. It's weird. I don't think they called her Patsy. I think they called her Trisha or something like that. Hmm. She was her blonde best friend. Oh, yeah. Oh. But they Uh, used this one element of the backstory in that. And yeah, I just, I think it's really innovative. It's not the first time. There's actually kind of a long tradition of comics being referenced as a meta narrative in comic books. The first time that I know of it is the introduction of the Silver Age Flash. They had that he was a big fan of the Golden Age Flash comic books, and that's where he got his name from. And then they ended up reworking that so that those comics were a reflection of an alternate universe, and he ends up meeting the Golden Age Flash a couple of years later. And within the Marvel Universe, I know Marvel Comics exist, and they offer fictionalized versions of superhero exploits so that they could work some of the creators into the universe. But this is, I think, the tidiest version of that that we've seen. And I, yeah, I just, I dig it. Yeah, I I dug it too. What I was less excited about was to see the return of Mandrill. Yeah, I wasn't that stoked about that either. I had also completely forgotten that he I don't think he was introduced as a Daredevil villain. I think he was first introduced as a Shanna the She-Devil villain. But up until he showed up in The Defenders, he had primarily tangled with Daredevil when Steve Gerber was writing that book. I'd forgotten about that. One of the things that I think was most startling about his reemergence as a character in this is when the members of Femforce are carrying a five-gallon bucket of his pheromones around with them. <laughs> and I just kept thinking... I hope that was a really painful extraction process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was bizarre. Yeah, a certain shitty joke about an automatic milking machine comes to mind. Oh. <laughs> so as we're going through this, I ended up just making a list of things that absolutely delighted me about this issue. And I want to get to that. But before we get to that, let's get the rest of it out of the way. Like you brought up, probably the thing that I liked least about this issue was, okay, Mandrill's still a thing. I guess we're going to have to deal with that. Mm -hmm. But it was kept in kind of the bookends of the issue, and I was able to kind of compartmentalize it away from the rest of the issue because of that, and it didn't really mar my enjoyment that much. Actually, there really isn't that much that I don't like about this issue. There's the return of Valkyrie's costume, which we already touched on a little bit. Uh, was there anything that you weren't crazy about in this issue besides Mandrill showing back up? Um, no, I mean, that that was the main bummer 
everything else was good. The Suburban Nightmare was a, a delight. It really was. The structure of this comic book is so fun. And I think we've talked before that especially when Gerber and Kraft were writing it, the book was always leaning more in the direction of superhero comics as a setting for a workplace comedy. Mm. But this is the first issue where I feel like it goes full sitcom. Like, this book reads like the pilot for a sitcom that I would totally watch where a group of superheroes have to live in suburbia and they get up to some antics. And I just really, really dug it. The writing breakdown of it, it says that it was co-plotted by David Kraft and Ed Hannigan. And reading it, it had that feeling about it, that this is like kind of two friends joking with each other and trying to outdo each other in a fun way. It, it feels like it is riffing off of each other. And that's something we haven't seen in this book in a while. Yeah, it has a lighter feel in a way than some of the previous books. And I think part of the reason for that is that it's, as I said, a collaboration between two people that I think got along pretty well. And it seems like it, it, it credits Hannigan with the scripting and the co-plotting to David Kraft. And it just kind of feels like, oh, Dave's going to be reading this. I bet he'll get a kick out of this and trying to put as many of those in as he could. So I think that's part of the reason for the tone of it. But we also saw that starting to come in in the last issue. And I think the other reason is we are told in the letters column that as of issue 92, we are going to have a new writer on the book. Mm. And that's kind of exciting for me. I have not been shy about the fact that I haven't really liked much of Hannigan's work up until this point. There have been bright spots, but not a ton of them, frankly. And I think part of what we're seeing in this issue is just him maybe not having the pressure, maybe being like, ah, I can do whatever I fucking want now. You know, got kind of like the writing equivalent of senioritis. <laughs> and I, I think it's really fun to read. Yeah, I love the idea that you know, this suburban landscape is populated by a large amount, one would gather, of relatively ineffective criminals. <laughs> yeah, you get the thugs that try to bully the Hulk, and then the inept gang of crooks who try to rob the Food Acres grocery store. Both of those scenes were a ton of fun. But earlier on, even before we get to the suburbs, there was some shit that totally cracked me up. Once again, we have it confirmed that Kyle's lawyer just really likes to watch TV when he's supposed to be working. <laughs> and what was he watching? It was There's like a really disturbingly depicted anthropomorphic rabbit. Maybe it's like I was supposed to be like a zing on Warner Brothers cartoons or something. It does look like that in the one panel that he's watching. But if you look in the panel that first shows up, it's actually even better. He's got a little hat, a rabbit with a hat and a box of shit. Yes, <laughs> I believe that is supposed to be the Nestle Quick Bunny. Only instead of quick, he is selling a box of powdered shit. If we are to believe the legend that is written on it. Uh. And uh, yeah, and that lawyer is just super into that. It's the first time we've seen him upset at all, and it's when the government tries to turn off the TV, and he throws a fit and smashes a fancy crystal vase, and it is because the IRS doesn't want him to watch Nestle Quick commercials where a bunny is trying to sell powdered shit. 
he's, he's a bad lawyer. Arguably the worst. Mm-hmm. Part of me does wonder if the fact that there is that really weird, harsh, and arbitrary dig at Nestle Quick is part of the reason why a few years later, Marvel published a comic book in conjunction with Nestle that was a free promotional 40-page comic book and activity book called The Adventures of the Quick Bunny. <laughs> oh, wow. They had to buy some goodwill back? I'm wondering if that's the case. I might be reading too much into it, but I thought that was at least a, an interesting coincidence, <laughs> if nothing else. <laughs> Even before that, though, we get Valkyrie carrying a knocked-out Bruce Banner around, and as she's carrying him into the hotel, we have the old woman who is walking her dog who is wearing a sweater, <laughs> thinking to herself, Oh, this women's liberation business has gone too far. That's not how we used to pick up men in my day. <laughs> yeah, that was hilarious. I thought that was pretty good. Uh, I also thought just the doorman being like, well, this is weird, but you know what? Kyle Richmond's a fucking weirdo, so I'm just going to nod and smile politely as these super heroic women carry a knocked out man wearing unintentional purple jorts into the hotel for whatever reason mm. yeah i i love that they went into the detail of giving him a a full name to barton beekman we see a lot of that in this issue a lot of people get full names the the people at the grocery store get full names and i think this is also the first time that we learn kyle's lawyer's full name which is milton rosenblum and I think there's a couple other minor background characters that we learn their full names. It's a nice touch, and in some ways, kind of an unnecessary one, but one that I really appreciated. Mm -hmm. And part of what makes, I think, too, the, the joke of the old woman looking aghast at Valkyrie and being like, women's liberation has gone too far, that can definitely read the wrong way. But I think it's also clear from the comic's point of view, the fact that she has dressed her dog in a sweater. I think it's clear that she is supposed to be the, in the position of ridicule, so it's not necessarily mocking feminism as such. It just made for a fun exchange, and the first of many. Uh, we already talked about Dolly Donahue's passive aggression, which I really enjoyed. We have a full-page map of the suburban home and its environs, where Patsy and... I guess the Defenders for now are moving in Montclair. Yes, Montclair, New Jersey. I mean, I love that page. I love a schematic and cutaway and having it be something akin to like the blueprint of the Titans Tower that we've seen or when they did the map of the Defenders secret headquarters on Long Island. But just having it be a suburban neighborhood that goes into so much detail. I loved that about it. Mm -hmm. I was so tickled that the name of their one fast food restaurant is Chicken OK. <laughs> <laughs> I was too. Yeah, it, it seems like a heck of a neighborhood. And it, it's one of those things where I think the page was included because they are going to a different format that has longer stories and they needed something to fill it out. But I love the way that they did it. Yep, it was a lot of fun. My only complaint on that page is maybe there was a coloring miscue where I think what's supposed to be a sign that says Glenridge Hospital and Nursing School is colored in in the same color as those like exposition boxes. Ah, uh, 
Yeah, I'm honestly not sure if that's a sign that's above it, or if that's supposed to be like the arrows indicating Walker Residence and Erie Lackawanna Railroad, you know? Or Joe Poldark's Jersey Gas Station. <laughs> or phone. <laughs> Well, and the phone comes into it later because we find out that Patsy Walker's mom's house that Patsy just inherited does not have a phone in it. Mm-hmm. Hasn't had one for years, and Dolly is of the opinion that that's a good thing. I know. I had this weird moment of, I don't know if nostalgia is the right word, but this idea of just not being so connected all the time. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, there were periods of time when I didn't have a phone, but that was because I just wasn't paying my phone bill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or power <laughs> to your apartment. Uh, okay, yeah, there was that too. <laughs> yeah, though there was a period of time when I was uh, shaving in the mirror behind the bar that I worked at that was a block from my house because my electricity had been turned off and I couldn't see anything at home. It also totally reminded me of like growing up my parents didn't own a telephone. We had a phone in our house, but they rented it from the phone company. <laughs> like, it was part of the house when they moved in, and, like, there was a little note on it that was like, if in need of repair, call the phone company, because this phone belongs to them. Wow. It's one of those memories that I'm like, wait, am I remembering that right? And follow-up question, am I 170? <laughs> <laughs> Did it have, like, the cone that you remove and put on your ear while you talk into the other bit? <laughs> it didn't. I did have a phone like that later, but that was a an attempt on my part to be quirky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, but no, the phone we grew up in, it was a rotary phone, and it was, yeah, owned by the phone company, and my parents rented it. It was weird. That was, I think, early 80s, probably honestly around the time this comic book came out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well... I guess Dolly had had enough of the phone company and their <laughs> rules. Yeah, good for her. So I mentioned before that I wasn't crazy about the fact that Valkyrie went back to her original costume in this issue. But I gotta say, I liked the explanation for why she is going back to her original costume. That Hellcat is just like, actually, you know what? Since you're going to be at this funeral, your job used to be ushering noble warrior souls to Norse heaven. You being in your original Valkyrie armor would be like having an angel at the funeral. And I was like, that's actually pretty sweet. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if Mrs. Walker died with a sword in her hand. So if she's eligible for Valhalla, uh, from what we've seen of the woman, I don't know how well she would enjoy living in a mead hall for all eternity but it's still kind of sweet it was sweet and it was one of those things that made me realize that i think patsy's one of my favorite defenders in terms of like they haven't really had her character do anything that's that just rubbed me the wrong way like so many of the other characters have done yeah i think that she has been pretty consistently handled so far as a pretty cool lady Mm-hmm. I mean, we do see that she has a tumultuous relationship with her mother, but it honestly is being handled with more emotional honesty than I would expect to see in this comic book. You know, like 
her mother passed on and she feels very conflicted about that. She loved her mother, but they didn't get along. It's not going over the top in its vilification of her mother, but it also isn't letting her off the hook for the shitty shit she did. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, got in a very subtle, I thought, dig at Buzz, <laughs> calling him a real stinker. <laughs> I like that that's subtle. Well, considering what a bad guy he was. Well, I mean, pieces of shit stink. <laughs> he was a real stinker. Back to Valkyrie. One of the few stories that Valkyrie has been allowed to tell is Valkyrie as a stranger in a strange land character. And that's been frustrating at times because of the way that it's been handled, but I think it's a storyline that kind of does make sense for her. But I wish that it had always been in the way that it's done here. Because what's been frustrating is I think that a lot of times when it's been the Valkyrie as a fish-out-of-water type storyline, especially when Steve Englehart or Steve Gerber were writing, although I think Kraft and Hannigan have done kind of the same thing, it's been, I don't understand the ways of this world, and that leads to me having an existential crisis and having to be told what to do and being unsure of myself and deferring to my male counterparts. And that's always been shitty. But the way that it works is the way that it's done in this, where it's her being like, the ways of this world don't make sense because they're dumb and shitty. <laughs> and I'm fine with just pointing out that they're dumb and don't make sense. Like, the good part of A Stranger in a Strange Land story, from my point of view, is you get to look at the ridiculous aspects of society with an alleged outsider's eyes and poke fun at society not at that character and that's what she's doing here when she goes grocery shopping and it's just fun hijinks it's her wonder bread that's a terrible name for bread is it, perhaps there's some enchantment attached to it yeah, there's a real um, indictment of processed foods in this issue, from rice-a-roni to Cool Whip to Wonder Bread, and uh, even um, canned beans. Oh, and there we have the best part of the issue, which <laughs> is the Hulk. The Hulk in this issue is so much fucking fun. He does essentially three or four things in this that are just wonderful and made me so happy to see. The first of which is after the punks who try to mug him, make him hulk out. He ignores them because he has to get the money to Val. But when he first goes into the supermarket, the automatic doors open and his response to that is, stupid doors must be afraid of Hulk. <laughs> I would read a whole comic that was just the Hulk and Namor discussing their strong opinions on the stupid doors of the surface world. Like, I think the automatic door would rank pretty highly. Like, yes, it has a sensible, reasonable fear of powerful men. And then, of course, the revolving door that Namor encountered in Daredevil number seven would be at the bottom of the list, which he has stated he's going to abolish when he takes over the surface world. And I think the Hulk could get behind that. I loved him going through the store, and then after they foil the bad guys, Valkyrie's like, oh, we don't have the list, and none of the things on it made sense to me because I'm from fucking Asgard. So I don't know what the fuck Cool Whip is. I don't know what to buy in this place where everything's all weird and color-coded, and there are so many different kinds of products. And the Hulk is like, 
I know what to do. We're getting beans. All beans. He got so many beans. And then when it's time to pay, he just dumps the shopping cart onto the conveyor belt and then slams down his money and says, Hulk knows what money is. Here, take money. Here's money. (laughs) And then makes them eat all the beans for dinner. And he's so happy. And everybody else is so glum. Mm -hmm. I cracked myself up. I went back and looked at my notes and... I said, Hulk is being so reasonable. And I love that that's my idea of the Hulk being reasonable. (laughs) Just buying all the beans. Yeah, I think we have similar ideas of reasonableness. I loved the Hulk in this issue so much. And I love the, the callback to his infatuation with beans. Every time that comes up, it cracks me up. And I think this is the most over the top depiction of it we have seen in comics yet. It's the biggest bowl of beans we've seen the Hulk eat, and we've seen him eat some big bowls of beans. (laughs) Well, and that's what makes this the best comic. (laughs) And Nighthawk does not care for the beans. (laughs) I think he's unfair in calling it an awful dinner, especially when we see what the alternatives to that dinner would have been with the few things that we did see that were on Valkyrie's shopping list. Were they just going to have noodle roni sandwiches made with wonder bread and then cool whip for dessert um yeah and i think beans is a better meal than that well of course yeah it's got protein it's got fiber all kinds mm-hmm. of vitamins yeah and it, it's in many ways a a musical fruit mm, good for your heart that's what i hear <laughs> <laughs> but kyle's not having any of that he hates living in this house in suburbia i love that Dolly makes him go outside and use his jetpack and wings, which he decides to not even put his costume on with. He's completely dispensed with the idea of having any secret identity at this point. Mm -hmm. Even the weird little nods he made towards it before, but him putting on his pair of wings to go fix the TV antenna, I thought was really fun. And everything in the neighborhood, keeping him from getting any sleep, I thought was really fun. There was just so much that I loved about this issue. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. And I I did also have the thought brought on by the yeah, the fact that he goes costumeless with his super wings to fix the antenna that like, you know, damn it, Kyle, it's your fault that Daredevil is in so much trouble because if you had known how to keep a secret identity, then the Femme Force wouldn't have known that, you know, your fancy apartment was where all the defenders hang out. That is a very good point, Corey. One that hadn't even occurred to me. Yeah, I feel like Kyle's ineptitude is one of those things where it's just so ubiquitous that you don't notice it. Like the one of the reasons why blue was one of the last colors that people developed because it was everywhere and it didn't occur to people that it was even a color, you know? It's just he's that incompetent that I I overlooked it. <laughs> That's okay. Thank you. Gosh, There's a lot to go over in this issue, but I do think that most of it's going to come up in the minutiae at this point. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get into that? Oh, just the last bit that I couldn't find a way to work into the minutiae, which is the mention of a Hulk-type hangover. (laughs) I was like, man, yeah, that would be unbelievable. Like, if your body's gone through this transformation and endured all this violence... To then go back into your fragile human form, like, oh my god, what is that going to feel like when you wake up? 
Yeah, you would need to be carried around by a mythological Norse woman for a solid several hours. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it wouldn't just be the violence that the Hulk encountered that your body would need to recover from. I mean, can you imagine puny Banner's weak human body trying to process the hundred or so cans of beans that the Hulk ate? <laughs> I mean, even if he had remembered to get the couple of rolls of Charmin that Dolly asked him to get... As he was running out the door, I got to say, I don't think that's going to do the trick. Mm -hmm. There was also one other interaction with the Hulk that I really enjoyed, which is when after he berates the automatic door for being afraid of him, we see one shopper say, oh, thank goodness. I must be having a dream. I was worried that these high food prices were real. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, it cracked me up, too. And, uh, you know, there's no timestamp in here, but if you can get an entire shopping cart packed to overflowing with cans of beans for only $38, like, there's a lot of inflation that's been happening since. That's true. And, I mean, if you get the Hulk discount, it's only $23, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Well, are you ready to get into the minutiae? Let's... Okay, Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Yes, Rick, thank you. So, Corey, mm -hmm. let's start things off because I think some aspects of this category might come up in other categories, so I want to get it out of the way. I got a question for you. Sure. Behold! or be gone, living in one of the houses on that map that we see on page 13. Ooh, wow. Like... So do you want to live in one of the two residential blocks in Montclair, New Jersey? Hmm. Well, on one hand, then I have to live in New Jersey. On the other hand... Sure. I might get an above-ground pool that's walking distance to Chicken OK. I know. Which is pretty sweet. Yeah, so uh, let's talk through the positives and negatives. On the positive side, pretty decent-sized home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you get an above-ground pool. Uh, I think that's the house that I would probably go with just because it has a fenced-in backyard, and I think that would be nice for Finley. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're walking distance from a supermarket. And a hospital. <laughs> and a hospital. And a donut shop. Mm -hmm. And chicken okay. <laughs> But, on the other hand, there is a train that runs nearby, apparently, at all hours of the night. Uh, there is the blinking neon lights of Joe Poldark's Jersey Gas Station. Mm -hmm. And there is the hospital nearby, which, while it would be convenient, you would also get ambulance noises going on a fair amount. Mm -hmm. Which way are you falling on this? Man, it does have a lot of amenities, but... I think for me it's a it's a be gone. I I have some experience both with urban and suburban and rural living situations. And out of the three, I gotta say for me, the suburban one was uh, just not the best fit. Yeah, that's mostly been my experience as well. On the other hand, well, you got the plus and minus of living next door to superheroes. I think that would be exciting. You see them coming and going. But also there is the, the danger we have seen the Hulk destroy suburban homes with relatively little provocation. Mm, um, true. We also do see that it is an area that has a lot of crime. 
generally fairly inept crime, but still it is a place where distinctively dressed street gangs feel free to bully physicists in the middle of the day with apparent impunity. So that's definitely in the negative column. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you're walking distance from a grocery store and walking distance. I mean, like within a block of a grocery store, a donut shop, which we see Kyle making a phone call in front of and a chicken. Okay. I am very, very curious about chicken. Okay. Mm -hmm. Curious enough to live in Montclair, New Jersey. That's not what puts me over the top. What puts me over the top is the food acres. You can get a quarter pound of lox for under two bucks. You can get, that's exactly what I was thinking. You can get a quarter <laughs> pound of lox for $1.99. Like, you can buy five pounds of lox for $20. <laughs> so much lox. Can you imagine? You just put that in your trunk and drive over to New York City and make some, make some money. Yeah, or just pick up some bagels while you're in New York City. It's a win-win. That kind of locks accessibility, I can't turn down. I am giving this a behold. All right. Food Acres, uh, what was the, what's the weird <laughs> grocery chain in New England? Well, there's Demula's Market Basket. Market Basket, there's, that's the yeah. one I'm thinking of. Yeah, I worked there for a little bit. I was a terrible employee. I uh, had the memory of you being let go for bagging things badly. Oh, I was never let go. I had to be retrained on my bagging twice. And also I would go and uh, one of my duties was just going out to the parking lot and getting the carts, which was my favorite duty because I would just go and stand there. <laughs> and it was just nice to be outside of the store. And occasionally when I was supposed to be doing that, I would go across the street to say hi to the girl that I was dating that worked at the Shaw's that was across the highway. Oh, wow. I was a terrible employee. Mm. But if I worked at Food Acres, I think I would do a much better job because, uh, you know, I would want to impress the manager, Mr. Hudak, and his uh, white jacket with a red carnation. Is that what that was? I was trying to figure out if he just like had, I don't know, something in his pocket or is he actually dressed like a, I don't know, like a Vegas guy with like a white jacket and a bow tie and a little red flower? I'm wondering if maybe that's the way that managers were dressed back then. I, I'm really not sure about that. But it, he is wearing a white jacket with a red carnation. But it looks like under that, he's wearing like more standard grocery store manager clothes. Hmm. Either way, he looks very menacing when he decides to wield two guns <laughs> and, and point them at their recently captured criminals. Mm -hmm. I'm a fan of Mr. Hudak. And I think that if I was working for Two-Gun Hudak, I would have been a better grocery store worker. I don't know, man. I just see you hiding out the walk-in, eating locks. Okay, if the locks were $1.99 for a quarter pound, I wouldn't need to steal them. Practically free. Exactly. So, yeah, living in Montclair, New Jersey, behold. Wow. Split decision. One behold, one be gone. Indeed. Well, this is a win for me because I can come visit you there, watch you have banter with Nighthawk, of which he is unaware. Exactly. You can swim in my above ground pool. Sounds good. 
well it came up briefly, but sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you feel were most noteworthy in this issue? Whew. Speaking of crimes, let's talk about some fashion crimes. The boss of that gang is a real goofy looking guy. Which guy are you talking about? He's like a red shirt from Star Trek, but with like a Billy Jack hat and a purple vest. Yeah, I saw that as like, yeah, red shirt from Star Trek uniform, but then he's on his way to a child's cowboy-themed birthday party. Yeah, exactly. Along with his buddy James Dean. <laughs> James Dean would be the guy in the lower right-hand corner, right? No, I was thinking James Dean is the guy who's tripping Bruce Banner because he's got the leather jacket and the, the jeans with the big cuffs. Yeah, but he's got the little cap on top of it, so I was putting him more as a Marlon Brando. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, he could be Brando. So yeah, you get that, but then you get also the specific footwear of the guy on his way to a child's birthday party. Those are some very distinct sneakers. And ones that I did not expect to see in 1980. In the scene where the sneaker is under Bruce Banner's chin, mm -hmm. the first one, in the subsequent ones, they look like more conventional 1980s-style tennis shoes. But in that first one, I'm pretty sure he's wearing a pair of Allen Iverson's Reebok Answer <laughs> 5s. Wow, that is very specific. I had to look them up because I'm like, I've seen those shoes before. So maybe the reason that he's dressed so oddly is because he's a time walker and he just he has the wrong idea era specific. He's like, oh, yes, America in the 20th century. I know what they dressed like. Space cowboys. <laughs> yeah, they would wear the Iverson answer fives and uh, they wore cowboy hats and vests. And <laughs> I've seen some TV programs where some of them were wearing these red shirts with little triangles on them. He's a real goof. Well, he's a real goof or a real goofy time walker. Either way, he is very lucky that the Hulk is too busy to smash him thoroughly. He sure is. I, I was worried about that. I was... You know, I didn't want this just to turn into another Hulk smashes and cops shoot him and he runs away. No, I mean, Mr. Hudak, the dapperly dressed individual we discussed before, treats him like a hero and gives him a $15 discount on his purchase of a cart full of beans. So good for him. Absolutely. Any other fashion you wanted to talk about? Sticking with the bad guys in this, the grocery store gang have like a really colorful ensemble one guy's got like a orange jacket with a pink shirt and a red cap the other guy's got a bright like canary yellow sweater with a purple jacket and a light blue cap they're very colorful mm -hmm. it's a very distinctly dressed crew of criminals indeed And it's time for another entry in our continuing Battle of the Band Names. In last week's battle, we saw a new champion, Get the Squid Drunk, absolutely destroying the challenger, Earth Strikes Water, the probably Wyndham Hill artists. <laughs> wow, who knew that nautical-themed ska music would resonate with people so much? It was certainly a surprise to me. But let's see if we can come up with a band name from the words in this comic that we feel could maybe take out Get the Squid Drunk. 
What were you able to come up with? Well, seeing as our Wyndham Hill-themed band from last time didn't do so great, I'm probably going to use as my runner-up the uh, outfit, I think from San Francisco, called Mystic Gesture. Ooh. Ooh, you know. Mystic Gesture is nice. I missed that one. Yeah. Like, gesture as in, um, not jester, like a court jester, but gesture, like, to show somebody where something is. Right, right. Or to pantomime the jerk-off motion. or That would be a very mystic gesture. <laughs> yep. So, anyway, that's the kind of more new-agey thing. I think that's a pretty good one. Uh, I had a couple. One of them, it, it's a little bit on the nose, but they would be a glam rock band, kind of reminiscent of T-Rex, called Glamour Pants. Mm, that's a good one. From when Nighthawk is repairing the TV antenna and he says, boy, what a job for a glamour pants superhero. I like the phrase glamour pants, and uh, I think that would be a pretty good, like, glam rock revival band. Mm, I could see that. Any others you found in here? Yeah, I think I would put as my choice a band that I think they just basically play like the Benny Hill theme song. (laughs) That's all they play. Yakety Sax? No, they are called Hanky Panky Aplenty. Ooh, Hanky Panky Aplenty. That's pretty good. No, Yakety Sax is the Benny Hill theme song. Oh, I didn't know it by name. I did because it was my ringtone for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then you would certainly appreciate the sonic stylings of Hanky Panky Aplenty. Hanky Panky Aplenty is pretty good. I think my preference would be slightly towards the punk rock stylings of the parasitic jackanapes. Ah, yeah, that's a that's a good one, too. Boy, that is actually a very tough decision. I think it does come down to, for me, uh, Hanky Panky Aplenty or the parasitic jackanapes. Do you have a preference between those two? Oof. Man, they are both good. I think I like... My choice sounds kind of funnier, but I just don't think that the Benny Hill theme music is going to unseat the nautical ska music. I think punk rock music has a better chance. Yeah, so, gosh, I don't know. Hanky Panky Aplenty. It's, it's, it's a, I think it's a better name. I just don't think their music's going to be as good. I think it sounds a little bit less like a band name for me, though. But I don't know if either one of them is going to be able to take out Get the Squid Drunk, the juggernaut of ska covers of sea shanties. Yeah, no, that is, that's a tough one. You know what? Let's toss a coin. Oh, as my father used to say when I was a kid, heads I win, tails you lose. Yeah, something like that. Okay, so heads is the parasitic jackanapes, tails is hanky-panky aplenty, okay? All right. And... It is tails, so hanky panky a plenty it is. Wow, what an upset! Ooh, well, let's see if that's the only upset hanky panky a plenty has in store for us. We'll see how they fare against get the squid drunk. As soon as this episode drops, I'll put that Twitter poll up. Nice. So, Corey, what was your favorite sound effect in this issue? Oh boy, there was. Some good sound effects to choose from. I think, though, the the one that takes the cake for me, and maybe just partly because it is so hard on Kyle, is the noise that the uh, the train makes when it goes by the house, which is woo-woo, clackety-clackety-clackety. 
I liked that one a lot too. There were a few to choose from. I think I went with one just because it was so distinct and I couldn't quite figure out how it would work. But when the time-traveling thug has his Iverson answer fives under Bruce Banner's chin, it makes the noise chuff. Mm -hmm. And it's just a weird noise that I couldn't quite figure out. We had some other ones in here. There was a chud at one point, which I'm always a fan of. Classic chud. A dacoom, I believe, as well. But uh, yeah, I'm going to go with the chuff. Yeah, I read the chuff as like it was just like a really inept kick where it was just kind of the noise of the the shoe sole like scraping up the front of Banner's shirt. Hmm. Also, I think uh, British people say that to mean pleased. Yes, they do. They would be well chuffed. But I don't think Bruce Banner was well chuffed to find that Iverson's answer five under his chin. No, I think not. So this was a tricky one for me to choose, but what was your pie not made out of steel in this issue? What words did you like best, much like you would like a pie, if it were not made out of steel? Yeah, mine, I don't know if it's the most obvious choice, but it just really resonated with me as being a powerful and also funny metaphor for feeling physically just beat up. And it was on page 22, and it's Daredevil saying that he feels as though he has been dumped on by a truckload of bowling balls. Yeah, it is very evocative. The particular phrasing of not that he has had a truckload of bowling balls dumped on him, but that a truckload of bowling balls dumped on him. (laughs) It's like, wait, so the truck took a shit on you? It's a Yeah, it is such a weird. Or or did the truck of bowling balls just make fun of you a lot and it makes you feel sad? Yeah, we'll never know. Yeah, I really did enjoy that. I was very, very tempted by Hulk knows what to get. Beans, lots of beans. (laughs) Classic Hulk. Mm -hmm. I was tempted by what door opens for Hulk? Bah, stupid door must be afraid of Hulk. And I was very sorely tempted by, bah, Hulk has money. Hulk knows all about money. Here is money. Mm. But ultimately, I could not choose anything other than the powerful mantra. Mmm, beans are good. Hulk loves beans. (laughs) I would be surprised had you chosen anything else. Uh, It was difficult because I also do really love the idea of paying for something by insisting that you know what money is. Yep. Very definitive in the way he just slaps down his $20 or whatever it is on the table. Just a bevy of riches to choose from. But I decided to go with, hmm, beans are good. Hulk loves beans. Nice. Corey, every issue of a Defenders comic has a best defender and a worst offender. In this issue, who did you have as your best and who did you have as your worst? Well, as I believe I stated earlier, because of his reasonable approach to everything, I had the Hulk. (laughs) He was a delight. He was so much fun. I love this issue. I love the Hulk in this issue. I had to choose him as well, although I also think Valkyrie did a wonderful job in this issue, and she was a lot of fun in it as well. But yeah, how, how could you not go with the Hulk? I, d- I didn't see any way around it. He loves beans. 
Beans are good. Yeah. <laughs> he speaks the truth. He's, he speaks truth to power. Conversely, who did you have as the worst offender? Man, Steve, for a few reasons. Okay. He doesn't even show up to console Patsy. He doesn't want people hanging out long-term at the Sanctum Sanctimonious. Well, I feel that's fair. They have crashed there a long time. I'm sure he's got plenty of room and ways to fold dimensions and whatever. He, he could make that easy. He's just being... You're right. He could absolutely make a few spare bedrooms in a pocket dimension. That's yeah, a good call. Yeah, he's being very selfish. But mostly because he has that rule that Men and women have to be separate when they're mourning. Wait, that was Steve's rule? I'd assume so. <laughs> it only happened at his house. Boys have to sit over there and be sad, and the ladies go on the couch. Yeah. Women have to do the emotional labor. Men, you sit at that table and watch sports. Right. I certainly noticed that division as well. I didn't realize, I think, that perhaps Steve has that house rules in a little sign posted above the door it's like probably he points to it and taps as labeled morning protocol mm -hmm. just a little thing with his eyebrows because he doesn't want to have to say it you know mm -hmm. oh 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 <laughs> ah, steve bruce there's a reason i had this sign printed and so it, it was so that i could point at it mm -hmm. gosh yeah I had not realized, I think, that that was his rule that was so fucked up that was doing that. I thought it was more of a societal norm, perhaps. But uh, I think that is a very solid choice. I went with Kyle for some of the reasons we have talked about. Him being so lackadaisical with his secret identity that he makes his lawyer Matt Murdock, a.k.a. Daredevil, an easy target for the mandrill. Also, when he is trying to get some sleep, he complains about the light from the gas station, but he doesn't close his curtains. <laughs> I'm like, dude, those curtains are open. Stop complaining about the light. He's just so, like, he has people for that, right? So it just doesn't occur to him <laughs> that he can do it himself. Yeah. And also for him just, like, waking up late in the morning and then just being like, yeah, I know I have a super important court date, but uh, I'm tired, so I'm going to call in sick for it from this payphone. And blaming circumstances outside of his control on that. That's like, there is a way for you to get into the city, dude. He refuses to take the train, too. He's like, too good for the train. Yeah. And we don't understand why. He's like, I'm sure as heck not going to take the train. Why the fuck not? Lots of people take the train. He's mad at it for keeping him up. And, well, I can appreciate that level of petty spite. I can't abide by his elitism. And inability or unwillingness to close the curtains. So, uh, yeah, I gotta go with Kyle for my worst, although I appreciate your out-of-the-box thinking with your choice of Steve. Thanks. Okay. What was your favorite panel? The entrance panel on page one was, was pretty striking. It was, and there was a lot going on with it. Yeah, there was so much going on. The map on page 13 that we talked about was great. Love that map, yeah. I really like the look of just withering disapproval that Patsy's mom has on her face on the marriage scene on page 15, that little <laughs> panel. Uh-huh. But... 
ultimately, I have to follow my heart and go with page 19. Beans! Is what I called it. That would be the, uh, here Hulk knows what to get. Beans, lots of beans. Yeah. Or or would that be when he turns the shopping cart upside down onto the conveyor belt? It's the beans, lots of beans one where he's just, it looks like he's playing with them like Scrooge <laughs> McDuck would do with like gold coins. He's just running his hands <laughs> through them and dropping them into the cart and going, lots of beans. Oh, that's a delight. Yeah, like possibly when he gets home, he's going to change into an old timey swimsuit and just dive through them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had to go with the follow-up panel to that on the next page, which I think could also reasonably be called Beans, which is the Hulk and the rest of the Defenders sitting down to an enormous feast of baked beans. Mm -hmm. And everybody but him looks so upset about it. He doesn't look particularly happy. I think he's probably trying to maintain some decorum because of Patsy's recent loss. But, uh... I just love the idea of them all sitting down to that giant dinner of beans. I love Kyle's face. He just looks so angry. <laughs> I also like Dolly's decision that like, well, everybody better eat up because the Hulk bought a lot of beans. So I made all of them. Mm -hmm. It's like, dude, they aren't going to go bad. I know. Also, Kyle keeps bitching about the beans and like he, he is literally thinking, yuck. You live less than a block from chicken okay. Yeah. Why don't you go get yourself some okay chicken? Or some donuts. Or some locks. Yeah. Lots of options. Bad job, Kyle. I love that panel so much. I love both of those panels. The bean shopping panels are so good. And so is the one where the Hulk gets angry at... Not even angry. I think he's kind of delighted that the stupid door is afraid of him. Mm -hmm. But I love that reaction to an automatic door. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love the way he his two word bubbles. The first one starts with "wah," <laughs> and the second one starts with "bah." <laughs> I think that would make a possible alternative to "behold" or "be gone." <laughs> "Wah" or "bah." <laughs> yep. Although that would be more "are you confused by this?" or dismissive of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, confused or angry. Not that they're <laughs> mutually exclusive. No, but uh, I, I think having at least wanting to keep something be a possible option sets a better tone for the year. Yeah, let's, let's stick with that. Corey, as we have discussed at length, the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? My takeaway from this was if you want to get big and strong, if you want to sleep well at night, if you want in general to be a healthy, well-adjusted person, you need a diet that is high in fiber and protein as found in legumes. Beans. Lots of beans. <laughs> yes, I also had the Hulk's rule being, Hulk loves beans. Beans are good. <laughs> really? I had him initially phrasing it as more along the lines of, you know, if you're unwilling to act, then don't complain about the results of your inaction. And that would be his takeaway for Kyle. Mm. But ultimately, that's just a fancy way of him dressing up. You know what? He loves beans. Beans are good. Shut up, stupid Kyle. Don't complain. You mm. get beans. All right. Wow. Maybe one of the first times we have basically the same Hulk's rule. I mean... 
Beans are good. Mm. Beans are good. Well, Corey, I have one final question I have to put to you. In the year of our Lord 1980 and the month of our Lord November, what Wong doings was Wong doing? Well, Wong is obsessing over a new record that he's got a hold of. Dolly Parton's 9 to 5 and Odd Jobs, her 23rd studio album that came out on November 24th, a month before the movie, 9 to 5, came out, which if this was set in December, that would be what Wong was doing, was enjoying that hilarious movie. Well, December is coming up, so keep that in your back pocket. Oh, fair enough. Whereas, you know, Wong was really into the song 9 to 5 and, and thinking about labor and you know, society in general and all of the work that, that we have to do. Dr. Strange's takeaway was, was very different, where he became obsessed with the song Dark as a Dungeon, which was uh, Dolly Parton covered that. It's a Merle Travis song about deplorable conditions that coal miners were facing. Ooh. But Steve was very much of the opinion that it, it was reminiscent of his time in Tunnel World and the work that they had to do in the dungeons there and just wouldn't fucking shut up about it. So uh, Wong just, you know, basically barricaded himself in his room and put 9 to 5 on repeat and <laughs> became a huge Dolly Parton fan. As we all should be. What a neat lady. Absolutely. Well, that was one thing that Wong was up to, but it wasn't the only thing that Wong was up to. Although it did relate. Hmm. Wong's other main activity in the month of November was revenge. Ooh. Not for himself but for one of his good friends. As we have seen numerous times in the pages of this book, Aragorn, the Pegasus, has had some bad luck in his life. Now, some of his injuries and trips to the hospital have been necessitated by encounters with supervillains or by, frankly, incompetent equestrian care by his owners. But not all of them. See. A while ago, Aragorn had been hanging out in the town of Guarare, Panama, and he just got knocked the fuck out. Like, some dude came up to him and punched him in the face, and he got knocked out. And Wong has been trying to figure out what the hell happened with that for quite some time. When he finally stumbled across this quote from Roberto Durant. Yes, it's true. I once knocked out a horse. It was at a fiesta in my mother's hometown of Guarare. Someone bet me a bottle of whiskey that I couldn't do it. Oh, no. And when Wong found that out, he became obsessed with the idea of making Roberto Duran pay for his crime. So on November 25th, when Roberto Duran fought Sugar Ray Leonard for the title, Wong made sure that he was in attendance. And during the fight, he started broadcasting Stephen Strange singing Dark as a Dungeon <laughs> directly into Roberto Durant's head. Oh, no. Until he just could not take any more. Which is why, at the end of the eighth round, as he went to his corner, Roberto Durant waved his arm and said, No mas. Damn. And forfeited the fight. Wow, that was a famous, a famous defeat. Yes, and it was all due to Doctor Strange and his singing ability. Wow. And Wong's sense of justice. 
Now, Wong later found out that the man who bet Roberto Duran that bottle of whiskey was, in fact, Baron Mordo, of course. Mm. But that doesn't excuse Roberto Duran's actions. Just because you can punch a horse out doesn't mean you punch a horse out. It's like we keep saying. <laughs> yeah. If I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times. And that is the Wong doings that Wong was doing in November of 1980. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us and talking with me about this fucking delightful comic book. You are welcome. It was fun. I hope that the new year holds in store many more triumphs like this. And I hope you guys liked listening to us talk about it as much as we enjoyed talking about it. We'll be back next week with a new Teen Titans story. And in the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by reaching us electronically, as this is the future, at ttwasteland at gmail.com. Or you can try our post office box. That's Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. If you can't find us there, we're probably up somewhere on social media. I can't be expected to keep track of all my wheelings and dealings, but I, I know we're up there on uh, the Evil Bird site and the Evil Zuckerberg site and the other Evil Zuckerberg site. You know, any place where evil's found will probably be there somewhere. If you can't find us there or you'd prefer not to, well, there's another place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. We'll be in there eating some beans. You know why? Mmm. Beans are good. You're goddamn right they are, Corey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you'd like to support the show monetarily and keep us in beans, you can do so by uh, checking us out on patreon.com slash ttwasteland and making a donation. If you do, you get access to all kinds of bonus material. There is the monthly Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa, called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. Should be a new episode of that coming out pretty soon. There's also a whole bunch of video reviews of classic comic books that I've been doing up there. I recently did all of the Treasury Edition giant superhero holiday grab bags that Marvel put out in the mid-70s. At least I think all of them. I did three, and each one of them had five comics in it, so that's a lot of comics there. And uh, did another one about the follow-up to one of those stories in Doctor Strange number 181. So you can check those out and some of the other bonus material that we've got up there for our donors. But more importantly, from my perspective at least, donating's a really nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate the work we do on the show and would like to see us continue to be able to do it. It really does mean a lot to me and has made a huge difference for me and has frankly kept the show going over the course of the last year. So thank you so much for that. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary fashion, you can spread the word any way you see fit. Tell a friend. Tell a doctor. Tell a lawyer. Not that doctors and lawyers can't be your friends, but doctors and lawyers can't be friends with each other. I read a sign somewhere in Dr. Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum. He won't allow it. Tell the Nestle shit bunny. <laughs>
uh, yeah, just, you know, spread the word. And if you don't have some kind of a direct hotline to the shit bunny, then why not leave us a review on your podcatcher of choice? Just type in, tighten up the defense. It's a good time and a great oldie. Mmm, beans are good. Mmm, five stars. Exactly. So thanks for doing that, and Happy New Year. And, uh, yeah, we will see you later. Mm -hmm. In summation, Hub loves beans. Beans are good. Mmm, chicken okay? Chicken okay. Beans good. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. And they know it. Yowza, it's Bowser's Trousers, a thing I might say at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Okay. I'm assuming they have a big sha -na, na exhibit. I don't see how they couldn't. <laughs> it is so weird to me. So, like, sha -na, na started in, like, the mid-60s, right? And they were a 50s revival band. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine if right now there was, like, a 2008 revival band? Gosh, I can't. I don't even know what what that would be. I don't either. Those time difference things always fuck with my head so hard. But the one that did it the most that I saw recently was that if Austin Powers came out today, it would be set in 1991. Oof. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the point is we're very old. <laughs> it, it hurts. <laughs> It hurts to be so old. Constantly and for no reason. Uh, it's so shitty. And the kids today with their music. Uh. Their baggy pants. Are they wearing baggy pants again? I think they are. Oh, I. Who can tell? Mystic gestures. Nice. I missed that one. Yeah. Gesture like a. Like you would gesture. Hey, uh, hey, man, <laughs> is that the gesture? Uh, the gesture, <laughs> hey, man? Hey, it's like, uh, you would, uh, gesture, like, um, <laughs> just let me start over. <laughs>